0: Welcome to The Hub. I'm Michelle Hope, your unapologetic sexologist. Hey, everybody. It's your favorite unapologetic sexologist here, Michelle Hope, for another amazing edition of Sexpert Positions. And today on the show, I have the greatest pleasure of being joined by one of my inspirations, A woman I look up to, Dr. Jana. Wow. I know, right?
1: Thank you for that lovely introduction. I mean,
0: honestly, um, I have been watching you, watching your career since we met a couple years ago. You have been an inspiration that keeps me going on my worst days. And she doesn't even know it, people. So that's (laughs) really fucking awesome. Um, And I am so happy to get the opportunity to sit down because I think a lot of times, When people hear I'm a sexologist or people hear about sex research, they automatically go to like dick and balls and pussy and booty holes, right? Yeah. But there's so much more that goes on, right? Mm -hmm. It's not all about exchanging bodily fluids. There's energy and emotion. And, you know, as a sex researcher yourself, we're looking at all things because all things are connected. Um, But before we go down that rabbit hole, (laughs) tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, and where you're from.
1: Sure, so my name is Dr. Jana Vrangalova. I am a professor of human sexuality at New York University. And in addition to all the academic work that I do there and uh, publish research in academic journals and all that, I do a lot of work outside of academia, trying to help people live the best, most realized sexual lives that they can that are authentic to who they are and what they want to do, and also taking into consideration what their personal circumstances are, because there is no one size fits all when it comes to sexuality. Regardless of how much other people try to fit us in these little boxes and tell us that we should be uh, fitting into into these boxes, but there aren't. So I try to help people find what their what their way of sex and relationship life can be. And I do that in lots of different ways, whether it's through talks, through coaching one-on-one, through my podcast, The Science of Sex, through videos and writing and lots of different
0: ways. So basically you are like an official sex geek. I'm definitely an official sex geek. Yes. And ladies and gentlemen, she is a bad man Cornell University is where you got your PhD, correct? Correct. Smarty pants. I love <laughs> it. Um, So now... You know, did you grow up in the U.S.? You did not. I did not. I grew up in Macedonia, which is
1: a small country in Southeast Europe, which used to be Yugoslavia when I was born, but then it, Yugoslavia broke into seven different pieces over the course of the years. And uh, I was born and raised there, went to school there, went to, did my undergrad there. I uh, majored in psych, and then I moved to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. at Cornell. So I've been living in the U.S. for about 12 years now.
0: See, and I wanted to bring that up that was on my list of questions because I want to know how growing up in a different country impacted the way you looked at sex and sexuality. Mm. And that's going to lead me into like how you got into this work in the first place. But did you have sex ed growing up?
1: We did not have much sex ed growing up. Macedonia or Yugoslavia at the time was a relatively traditional society, even though it was not... Uh, religious in any way. So we were an atheist country because it was a socialist country. So there was no religion, which is often the source of anti-sex attitude organization in a society. But we didn't have that yet. It was relatively traditional for other reasons, just for kind of historical and patriarchal reasons. So we didn't have much sex ed. There were certainly double standards expected of men and women, very clear gender roles, even though all women, for example, worked, everybody worked, uh, because that was kind of part of the socialist agenda that everybody, everybody's labor outside of the home was, was uh, important. But then there are these very clear gendered roles where the women were doing all the housework, for example, and were expected to be Less experienced, less sexual, and uh, there was no understanding or acceptance of non heterosexuality, for example. So, no LGBTQ anything. Mm-hmm. There was no acceptance or understanding of alternative lifestyles in the sense of, say, kinky sex, mm-hmm. in the sense of open relationships. Mm-hmm. So, none of those things. It was very much this a man and a woman, you know, probably in a long term relationship. I don't think casual sex was completely out of the question but it was frowned upon yeah somewhat frowned upon and uh, yeah expected to be relatively vanilla monogamous long term and so on so there was not a lot of room for uh, variations outside that norm and I certainly fit (laughs) all of those alternative kind of lifestyles and interests and desires that that were not accepted or talked about
0: and if they weren't accepted or talked about, how, like was this just like a feeling, a knowing, or like did you have opportunity? So like for me, growing up in the U.S., you know, I've talked to my listeners about trailer parks, and my mom's a lesbian, so there's always some mm-hmm. openness. But there was Neon Flux, which was this weird liquid, MTV had this thing, liquid television. It was like late night cartoons. And I mentioned to you Red Shoe Diaries. So Mm -hmm. I got into that kind of young um, and like kind of explored like, oh, wow, what is sexuality? I also found a Playboy once that helped. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm going to be Latoya Jackson on the cover of Playboy. But anyway, (laughs) I say all that to say like, how did you like find this if it was not out there or not? Um,
1: I was personally just a very sexual person, kid, from, from as long as I can remember about myself. Right. And I didn't particularly care much about what people said mm-hmm. or what society said or thought. I don't know why. I don't know how the heck I ended up like that. I just never particularly cared. And so I did the things that I wanted to do and pushed the boundaries in my own life and around the people that I interacted with, boyfriends, lovers, friends, and all that, and and then dealt with whatever societal backlash and ostracism may have come with that at times. But again, I, for some reason, it did not affect me as badly as it had many other people. It, in, in some ways, it made me more passionate about fighting that. It mm-hmm. made me more of a rebel. And I really reveled in that rebel kind of role and, uh, so when time came to, you know, after I did my undergrad, when time came to pick what my PhD topic was going to be, and I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. I always knew I wanted to do a PhD. That was, that was something that I carried from a very early age. And maybe because my dad was a professor at the university and scientists, and he kind of instilled all this, all this love for science. So I knew I was going to do that. I wasn't sure what my topic was going to be, but when that time came around, I was probably 22 or three and... I asked myself, "What is the one thing that is going to keep my interest for the rest of my life professionally?" And it had to be sex, because like, what else is more fascinating to me than sexuality? Especially given that position of mine, where I was on the my own sexuality was on these margins, and yet I had the personal strength, and not just strength, but I was excited. I had excitement around pushing boundaries and, and, and being a rebel. So I thought I I would be uniquely positioned to take this on as a as a job
0: and here we are and, and you are, are all around <laughs> badass so um next i want to get into like so it's cool that science has always been a part of your life and to turn it sex into science is even better mm-hmm. out of curiosity when you think about um what you research and what are some of the things that you have researched in your work? My research has mostly been on casual sex.
1: Yes. Non-monogamy, promiscuity, and then also sexual orientation or non-heterosexuality, especially the mostly straights, the, the folks who are not entirely, entirely heterosexual, but not necessarily very same-sex oriented to think of themselves or be thought by others as, as bisexual. But those were my kind of two general lines of research, the sexual orientation stuff and the casual sex non-monogamy promiscuity
0: okay so since you just said we'll get to the promiscuity non-monogamy in a moment but since you did say like that the spectrum of sexuality Mm um i'm gonna ask a question that i get all the time it's Mm -hmm. probably gonna sound like michelle i can't believe you're asking me this but i'm gonna ask so i have heard this is what i hear from people so i have heard that bisexuality is just one train stop away from gay land (laughs) So can you tell our listeners, first of all, I don't believe that people, but can you tell our listeners, like, how does bisexuality work and how do we become respectful to people who identify as bisexual? I mean, I identify as queer, right? I'm Mm -hmm. here. I'm queer. Get used to me, Mm -hmm. girl. But that's not really bisexual um, for me, at least. Um, But how as a scientist in this space? Well, for you, I mean, what does
1: queer mean to you? Does that include attraction to men and women? It,
0: yes, but it also okay. includes, a, sometimes I identify as they, them. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it so, also, so my gender, gender, I put identity. my gender identity in so that. The,
1: But those are two different things, right? Queer can be often used, and many people will use queer to identify their gender identity. Yeah. Something other than cisgender woman, yes. cisgender man. And that's one way to use queer. The other way to use queer is to use it for your sexual orientation, who are you attracted to, not who you identify as. Right. But with gender uh, or sex you're attracted to. And so people will use it for anything other than heterosexual very often. Or sometimes people will use it as, as something more than just bi because saying bi only allows often for two genders. Exactly. And or many people will identify or, or will interpret it as meaning men and women, but excluding everyone else. Exactly. Although there have been some attempts by bisexual activists to broaden the, what that term means mm-hmm. and say basically that it means I'm attracted to my own and any other genders.
0: Oh, I haven't heard.
1: Yeah. Of. And so you can, because what they've been trying to do is instead of picking all these new or coming up with all these new terms that fewer people are aware of or fewer people, you know, people now might have to learn or whatever to use a, a term that already exists and just broaden it, its meaning right. because we're all fighting for the same thing more or less. The, the people who are bisexual in the more narrow sense, like only men and women, mm-hmm. they're still fighting more or less for the same things that the people who are bisexual in the broader sense of the word, men, women, trans folks and non-gender binary folks, I'm, a, I'm attracted to them all, right? right. We're still fighting for the same thing we're still fighting for inclusion and visibility. rights and acceptance mm-hmm. and visibility of people who are non monosexual who right. are not a- attracted to just one gender or just the you know another gender so but that's getting into this serious complexity of what each of these terms mean in general, to go back to some more basic. Uh, misunderstandings or stereotypes around bisexuality, the one train stop away <laughs> from gay land, uh, that, that is a stero- certainly a stereotype that exists in a lot of people's minds. And it's not based on completely no no reality. There are some people, for sure, there have been people who in their developmental process, as they've gone from being, you know, thinking that they have to be straight because yep. their society tells them that they're straight, they're kind of testing the waters and learning about themselves by trying out kind of being bisexual on the way to Gayland, so that certainly happens. It has happened. It's not. It's not. Uh, th- it's not like that doesn't exist. Exactly. There's a lot of train stops
0: between <laughs> here and Harlem, but
1: it doesn't always mean you'll end right. up in Harlem. Exactly. Some people are on their way to when you see them on the on the sixth train somewhere in Midtown. Yes. You know, or you know, by Twenty Third Street, yes. some of them might be going to Harlem. Some of them might be getting off at Twenty Eighth Street or and the Forties. Right. Who knows? So I
0: I, I appreciate that anal- I think mm-hmm. the analogy is really good and I also think that um, you know another thing I get which is super ignorant but go ahead there is
1: so much evidence at this point that there are plenty of people who are bisexual like for real they are bisexual they are not on their way to gay land they're never going to be completely same-sex oriented or attracted they have attractions to both same and other genders and that's just the very real thing and we've we've tested that in so many ways it's not just asking people what what you know they identify as or who they're attracted to the self-report that you might say well people are just lying we've done these objective measures of physiological arousal for example what are people's vaginas and penises saying in response to say watching different kinds of porn uh, so you hook up people to these, you know, uh, devices that will measure arousal, you know, how hard or how, yeah, how much penises grow or how, uh, how much blood flow there is in the vaginal area when they're watching certain types of porn and see what happens. And so that, will sh- that shows us that there are bisexual patterns of arousal. What, another way to do it is to see where people look to do eye tracking when you show them different types of porn or different. And so you'll hook up to an eye tracker, and you see where people look, how long they look at the different stimuli that you give them, and also how much their pupils dilate. Because dilation of the pupils indicates greater interest. The more, the more they open up, the more interested you are in these things. So all of these different methods all show us that there are people who are truly, honestly, bisexual
0: I want to get in one of these studies. That, like I'm, and again, you guys, I'm sorry. This is not actually. You can't see my facial expressions. Wow. She. Yeah, they're priceless. <laughs> yeah. Because I am just what I am, <laughs> I am fascinated, or maybe I need to go back to school and and become a sex researcher in this context. Um, you know, because there's just so many things that is, that's so interesting to me, especially when, in the communities that I often talk to, and in communities of color, the the stigma of Anal play. Oh, yeah. In men, like, oh, you're gay. And I keep telling people, I say, like, anything a heteronormative <laughs> couple does, it's heteronormative. <laughs> I don't care if she straps up. It doesn't, it's still a, it's still. It's not just communities of color. I see
1: that all over the place, no matter race, gender, ethnicity, background. I hear that all the time. There's so much stigma around that. People just associate penetrative anal sex in men as gay That's right in their mind if something is going in somebody's in in a man's ass mm-hmm. that means that man is gay but that is completely ridiculous
0: missing out on a lot of pleasure
1: <laughs> a lot yeah the, sexual acts don't have sexual orientations right, right? say it it's, again it's uh, who do you want to be putting that thing in your ass that matters? If you're a guy and want a guy to be putting something in your ass, yeah, you are probably gay or bi. Okay. If you are a man who wants a woman to be putting something in his ass, then that's pretty straight.
0: And maybe subby. It's a little subby it maybe. It could be, but not
1: necessarily. No, absolutely not. That's another uh, misconception about about penet- penetration. Just mm-hmm. because you're being penetrated doesn't mean that you're being submissive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very easy. Easy to interpret penetrative mm-hmm. sex as, as you know whoever is being penetrated as being on the on the submissive end of things but no you you absolutely can do that without any kind of domination submission subtext yep absolutely you can even do it the other way around you can be penetrated and yet, be the dominant partner mm-hmm. in that interaction. By say, if you know, say, you say you're you're a woman who wants mm-hmm. to get penetrated by by a man with with his penis, you can order him. You can be the dom and order him how he could penetrate you. Or you can be the one doing kind of you know, using his his penis as a sex toy that you are going to penetrate yourself with, kind of thing. So there are a lot of ways to play around. Just the act of Penetrating someone is not dominant, and the act of being penetrated is not submissive. They can be played out that way if you want to, but you can do those acts without any any amount of or level of domination submission incorporated, or you can do them in the other way around. So a man, you know, I, I I have partners. I love to put things in men's asses. You yeah. and me both, oh, girl. High five. Sh- yes, honey. And some of those are they they. Part of their fantasy around that is to be submissive. Right. But some of them have no interest in submission at all. They just want something in their ass because it feels good.
0: And And that's it. Period. And and a part of the reason it feels good is, from my understanding and, and the things I have researched, is that the prostate has a lot of nerve endings. No, um, so the
1: anus itself has a lot of nerve endings, which is why I it like feels good for anybody with or without a prostate. Oh, right? okay. The, a- the anus itself, when you penetrate it, when you touch it, when, whatever you whatever you put there, a tongue or a dildo or a toy or a finger you will feel sensation because it has a lot of nerve endings. And it makes sense that it would have a lot of nerve endings for for biological purposes. You know, when things are coming out of there, you want to know if something is tearing or not tearing. And, you know, you want to make sure that you have feeling Mm -hmm. in that area so that you can monitor that everything is okay, Mm -hmm. right? And so that that, those same receptors can be used for pleasure to receive and uh, interpret pleasure. On top of that, Mm-hmm. You have a prostate for for people who are um, prostate owners. For pr- prostate <laughs> owners, for those who have prostates, whatever, however they identify their gender identity, uh, if they have a prostate, that it, in addition to whatever uh, receptors are in the anal area, that is very pleasurable to um, to stimulate. And so, if you can get at it, and, yes, and uh, get at it, uh, it, it people who. Have experienced that kind experienced that kind of play. Say that it's some of the most mind blowing orgasms that they've ever received. And some men can come from just that, uh, anal penetration or prostate stimulation alone, like mm-hmm. and- milking. Yeah, you can kind of milk them, basically, yeah, Mm -hmm. without any stimulation of the penis. Most of the time, though, that doesn't happen. Most of the time, it's a combination of penile uh, stimulation of some sort, whether he's jerking himself off, Mm -hmm. or you're jerking them while you're putting Mm -hmm. something in their ass, or... Yeah, a
0: reach around. Yeah. Yeah. So, I had once read somewhere that a penis and prostate orgasm for men of a certain age could be um, dangerous... Listen, because the orgasm could be so intense that it could create some um, heart arrhythmia. Do you feel as if (laughs) there is any possibility of that being being a fact? Could you come so hard as an old person you could die? I think that's probably not
1: impossible. I mean, if the sex is particularly vigorous and...
0: Maybe you've popped one too many blue pills. I don't know.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I I think certainly it's possible. I don't think it's very common or very likely that that would happen. And also, I don't think that adding the prostate necess- uh, pleasure to that necessarily will increase or decrease the likelihood of that happening. But um, yeah, I think I think the vigorousness of the activity, just like you could, you know, have a heart attack while you're running, or if there's, or I don't know, some other very intense physical activity. But I think that most people, the vast majority of people should really not worry about that.
0: Yeah, no. I, I, yeah. I, I, it's, it's one of those fun, strange things I saw on a medical mm. website of something. But this is why, people, you don't go down the medical rabbit hole, <laughs> right? If you have a lesion, a bump, some type of discharge, you don't Google it. You go to the clinic, especially if you've had unprotected sex with somebody. You don't know safe Mm -hmm. sex is the best sex um so we are talking about sex casual sex the spectrum of sexuality um and let's talk about a little bit um sex parties because that's kind of become a a a popular Mm -hmm. it's more mainstream now i Mm -hmm. i feel like um i've been to them you Mm -hmm. know And a lot of people don't understand they're not as sexy always as uh, you want them to be. Maybe I'm not Mm -hmm. going to the right ones (laughs) because I've been to ones where I'm like, wow, I wouldn't probably have sex with anybody Mm -hmm. here. Um, And have you seen in your research, have you been, have, have you ever seen a sex party? Have you heard sex party stories? Maybe you've done some participatory research like I have done in my day where you've been to some. And what is your feel or takeaway on sex parties? Oh, I have so much to say about sex parties. We actually did
1: a survey with a colleague of mine at uh, Widener University in Philadelphia on people who've been to a sex party in the past year. We're just analyzing all of that data, and there should be a few papers, few academic papers coming out from that research soon. So people should be on the lookout for that. Uh, but... We definitely have a lot of information now from them. There's a nationally representative sample, actually, of Americans that got asked if they've ever been to a sex party. And what percentage do you think have been to a sex party in their lifetime?
0: Uh, You know what? Just give me. Just 50 percent. 50 percent? Is that too high? Michelle! It's it's way too high. Okay, five That's much Uh, closer to the truth, six. Yes, 6%
1: of the U.S. population, adult population, 18 and over, have ever been to a sex party. Which, you know, you think, oh my God, that's nothing. But in reality, that's a lot. That's over two, that's like... That's like millions of people. That's millions of people. That's a lot. That's a big minority. If you think minority groups, you know, let's say gay folks only make up, people who identify as gay or lesbian or Mm. or bisexual only make up about four or five percent of the population. Right. So this is about the same amount. If you think about people who are in non-monogamous relationships, they only make, they make about three, four percent of the population of those who are in relationships. So, you know, these are minorities, but they're not, insignificant. It's not like it's .001%, right? Right, We're talking about millions of people. Um, So yeah, there are lots of sex parties happening. There are so many different types of sex parties. There are sex clubs that operate kind of on a regular basis and uh, anybody can kind of walk in. There are some parties that happen every now and then, maybe once a month or so, and they they might have a a kind of a an application process of some sort where you have to send, send your pictures. photo mm-hmm. maybe answer some questions about who you are why you want to go to this party or something like that and then the, there's a, the the model of sex parties that is an invite only so you can only go to this party if somebody who's already been brings you in or the uh, organizer themselves invites you to that party and then there's a different level of of accountability than whoever brought you in is kind of responsible for you um so so there are different very different types of parties and then some will cater to specific demographics you know some might cater to lgbt folks some might cater to couples only some some might cater to uh, couples and bi or bisexual men and couples Mm -hmm. and so there are different types of parties Mm -hmm. they might cater to different ages some might be only 35 and younger or 35 and older. Uh, so it it really depends. There's so many of them. And what but basically in this research that we did, we had about 17 or 1800 people from the US who had been to a play party of some sort in the past year. Many of them were not just pure sex parties, they were uh, kink parties. Yes. So they were more focused on the BDSM aspect of it and some of them actually had no sex rules, so no penetration.
0: Ah. You know,
1: you can have some, you know, kissing or whatever, but it was more about the kinky activities. Spanking, tying up, bondage, suspension, whatever, humiliation, domination, submission, but not actual penetrative sex. So there are lots of different rules and, and types of parties. Most of the people seem to enjoy them and find them, you know, like a fun, interesting experience. Of course... Many people will go and not enjoy them and not go back. But uh, very often these, these places have rules around consent. Yes, have rules around safer sex. Yes. And uh, so many people, what we hear over and over again from our participants is that they often feel safer at these parties than they feel at uh, just going out to a ran- random club. where people might just come up to them out of nowhere and start grinding on them without any kind of negotiation, verbal or nonverbal, like just coming out from behind. You've never seen this person. You have no idea who it is. And they just like grab you from behind. That would almost never happen at most of these, of these parties of these sex parties that, that we um, ask participants about. And, and um, there's a, often a very clear negotiation of safer sex protocols and so people feel safe that their needs for whatever level of safer sex they want to engage in are going to be uh, respected. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's
0: the... It's a fascinating world. It really is. And and for the experience that I have in it, not only as someone who's gone, but I have a lot of friends who are doms mm. and who work in dom spaces right. or they work in dungeons and they work in all these kind of kink spaces. Um, consent is huge mm. and they they understand it so well. Um, for me, like going to a party and having... I don't dance at parties anymore. I never have. Really? I mean, I, I was a dancer, a, an adult, like a stripper for seven years. And so for me stripping, first of all, is glorified. And it can be good. It can be this. But there's a lot of hazardous things in the job. Like Mm -hmm. you're exposing yourself to like verbal harassment. Sure, sure. Potential physical. Yeah, yeah. potential physical. Mm -hmm. So after I stopped dancing... I was like, I'm not nobody's coming up and grinding on me in mm-hmm. the club. You're not giving me no $25, so you ain't getting a lap dance, right? <laughs> Whether we're standing or right, not. Right. So I've never really been into that. So when you go to these kinds of sex parties, everybody is asking permission mm-hmm. and usually there is a precursor party from from my experience. Where Or like a quote-unquote meetup mm-hmm. where you some, might be able to... Some of those to, parties yeah. do have
1: that, um, yeah.
0: and I, Some
1: of them will have kind of an orientation right yes. before the party. Yeah, so there are different ways that these party organizers can try to ensure that people are aware of what the rules are and that they're following the rules. And then there, there will be people like dungeon monitors or... Uh, consent angels or something like that people who are designated and people know that they're designated to make sure that people are being safe and consensual and all that so you can go and complain to them if there is an issue or something like that Um, but yeah it's a it's not for everybody you know people think that um, uh, or a lot of people think also that if you go, you have to play, you have to do something. It, it's all, you know, big orgies all the time. And a lot of the time it's not like that. Right. Many of these parties you can just go and watch and not actually engage. And I, I recommend to a lot of people who are in monogamous relationships, long-term romantic monogamous relationships, and they don't necessarily want to bring in other people. Or they, even, they might even be absolutely certain that they don't want to bring in other people into their relationship sexually, but they want to spice things up. They want to bring in some novelty and, sexiness and whatnot and i often will recommend going to one of these sex parties and not doing anything with anybody else you know just watching just Mm -hmm. being in that sexual space and getting some of that yeah sexual energy and then you go home and you might have the best sex of your life yep or you go there and you only play with your partner Mm -hmm. nobody else and as as we said many of these places are really safe uh, spaces where people are not just going to come up to you and start touching you without asking you can easily have a full-on sexual experience with just you and your partner without, without being being threatened kind of by, by anyone if you want that exhibitionistic yes. kind of uh, excitement.
0: I like that. I also think that there is a space. I love the recommendation you gave for monogamous couples mm-hmm. to experience mm-hmm. things like that. And I think if you're maybe not so daring or don't know where to mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. a sex party, but you're in the New York area, start with the House of Yes, Oh, yeah, those are good parties, the House of yes They're not sex parties per se. Not at they're all. they're very sexy parties. Very sexy. And I say that because I have had friends who have performed there mm. who then um, would have, you would find an ability to resource mm-hmm. actual to sex. To learn about. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You or, might meet someone yes. who's going to invite you to yes. one or tell you about yes. them. Yeah. House of Yes. House of Yes. So most recently I bring that up because I was reading an article and it was like top 10 things to do around the world. And Uh House of Yes is number two.
1: Really? Yeah. Wow. And we're in Brooklyn right now. So I know you've been. Oh, I love the House of Yes. I I used to go to the House of Yes before it was this legal and uh, uh, kind of mainstream almost entity that used to have. This is the third iteration of the House of Yes. They had kind of two other spaces before that that were kind of underground and dodgy. And I used to go to them back
0: then. I'm pretty sure the House of Yes that I went to Mm -hmm. was not legal. Yeah. Because there were some (laughs) things happening (laughs) in front of me. I was like, first of all, that's a fire hazard. Um, Second of all, this space is way too small for all this Going Was like, it the, the previous? The, I believe the previous so. It was a like, and yes. it wasn't downstairs y or it was a bit um, underground. Or maybe I was just so drunk I thought no, I was down underground. underground but the it was. The previous
1: space was not underground, but it definitely was.
0: It was definitely small and very dark. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a lot of things happening on a bar where I was kind of like, did I just get a. Dr-? You know what? This seems strange, but I loved it. I love underground things like yes. that. When it comes to sex parties and consent, we kind of have talked about how there are safety precautions in those spaces. But in the real world, when you're just out Mm -hmm. and about, (laughs) it's not so safe. And in the Mm -hmm. last, you know, 18 months, we've seen this uptick of the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement, which have had some criticisms. Mm -hmm. I personally have even had some, not criticisms, just wanting to peel back more layers, Mm -hmm. For the work that you do and for the sex research that you've been doing, how has this kind of impact or influenced um, your work? Or do you see it impacting or influencing? Or are these things you already knew? Um, I mean, I think a lot of
1: this was relatively clear to the research community. It's not like it's new to, to us that people, the way that we were doing consent in the past was inappropriate. And for many people ended up leaving them feeling assaulted and harassed. But I am very happy that the Me Too movement happened because it made clear to so many other people that the way we were doing consent wasn't always uh, the right way to do it. Even though there were certain uh, ways of doing consent that people were... They, they were clear that, okay, this is not working out. When somebody is kicking and screaming and whatnot, that, that clear clearly is a no. But then there was this big gray area that was not very clearly communicated what it was and how people felt and to what extent you were allowed to push within that gray zone. And, um, and now it became clear that many of those experiences that people had had in that gray zone were, in fact, felt, felt very non-consensual, felt um, uh, like an assault and harassment. Now, on the other hand, though, and this is where I diverge from a lot of people who've been talking and thinking about the me too movement i think that now we've taken things to the other extreme so c- come on now <laughs> tell me about it tell me oh, about it i'm happy to i think that now because we've we're trying to overcorrect for how how badly things have been or how badly we've been doing things and now we're trying to overcorrect by by making it almost impossible to negotiate consent uh, without having very very uh, kind of explicit and clear, verbal, we're basically forcing people to a,
0: to a point of, how do I say this? For me, the issue is, one, as somebody who identifies as a feminist, we're putting all the onus on men and we're not stepping back and seeing the spaces in which women mm. have crossed the line um and 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 we because that's not a part of the narrative of the me too um but especially in some of the communities i've worked in and communities of color the the amount of men who can tell me about experiences where they have been either coerced Mm -hmm. to have intercourse um or have been coerced into parenting Oh sure, Um, or made to feel or shamed into sex. Like oh, what you don't want to have sex with me? Are you a gay man? I'll tell people. I'll I'll tell Mm -hmm. people about Mm -hmm. this. That is that is still messed up. Sure, sure, sure. But we don't talk about that.
1: Yeah, that is part of the issue. But for me, that's that's not my main. That's not my main point. Um, Your issue is my now. I fear that we are taking things to the other to the other extreme, where the only way that we now say is acceptable to have sex is if it is you know, verbally, explicitly stated and everybody is uh, completely sober. There's not a single drop of alcohol involved and there is no power differential between the two people whatsoever. And you're doing, you're negotiating this in a a flirting designated zone, like a a dating app or a bar or a club. And you can't, you now can't hit on anybody anywhere but these spaces, Mm -hmm. right? And you, and uh, so you can't, Talk to anybody on the street, or on an airplane, or whatever it is. Right. So all of the, or in the workplace. So all of these spaces become completely Mm desexualized, and then we also make um, make it so that nonverbal consent, nonverbal signs of consent and communication, do not do not qualify. So anything that's negotiated non-verbally all of a sudden becomes sexual assault. Anything, any kind of attention that is being uh, communicated in these non-designated flirting zones is all of a sudden now automatically designated as assault or harassment. And any kind of sex or sexual interaction that gets negotiated between people of different power dynamic, power differentials, automatically becomes designated as as assault Mm -hmm. or harassment and that is just insane Mm -hmm. that cannot be true we are as human beings we have sexual desires and interests and those are not going to disappear uh, in the workplace or on the street or anywhere else that we are so we have to be allowed and we have to allow people to acknowledge that they have desires and attractions that happen outside of flirting designated zones Mm -hmm it's we have to allow for nonverbal consent to be valid a valid way of negotiating consent because we know that the vast majority of sexual interactions from research we know that mm-hmm. the v- vast majority of sexual interactions that do f- feel consensual are negotiated at least partially nonverbally people already people do that so if you tell these people oh it, whenever you negotiate consent nonverbally that's assault then you're turning everybody into a victim and everybody into a perpetrator of sexual assault. And we don't want to do that. Nope. Uh, same, same thing. We have to acknowledge that some amount of substance use might be uh, consistent with consensual sex.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we have to acknowledge that some amount of power differential or even great amount of power differential can still be consistent with consensual sex. Yep. What these places do is they increase the risk of things being non-consensual or coerced. So when you have a lot of power differential, there's a greater risk that the person with less power might be, might be coerced into something. Or when you have you know, somebody drinking or doing substances, there's an increased risk that they're not consensual. When you're approaching a stranger on the street, there's a higher risk that they might feel that as harassment than if you're approaching them on an app. Right? Um, and so, but just because there's higher risk Doesn't mean everything is. Doesn't mean that every single interaction in that that context or between those people is automatically harassment or assault. So the problem is that we've been doing this flirting and negotiating sexual situations badly. It's not that we're negotiating or having these sexual situations like flirting outside of flirting designated zones sex under the influence, sex in the workplace, sex between people with power differential. So we, what we need to do now is not to overcorrect by saying, we're just not going to do this. Yeah. Nobody can flirt with anyone on the street. Nobody can have sex unless it's it's uh, completely sober. Nobody can have sex, sex with anyone unless they're fully uh, equals. And yep. nobody can se- have sex with anyone unless everything has been written in, in stone and uh, signed, crazy. you know, signed <laughs> a, a verbal and a video agreement. Right. No, that's not how we're going to solve this problem. If you do that, then you're just going to alienate people. You're going to shame them even more for mm-hmm. having the desires that they do. You're going to make them feel like they're perpetrators of sexual assault as mm-hmm. well as victims of sexual assault when they weren't. Mm-hmm. And so the, the challenge is to find that, that good medium yep. where we're teaching people how to navigate these potentially risky or high risk, higher risk uh, situations in a way that isn't assault and isn't harassment.
0: Yep. So in my classroom, I work with young people, as you know. I always say, listen, if you think the person is so intoxicated that they might throw up on your cock... <laughs> If they give you mm-hmm. a blowjob, that's probably not consensual sex. Yep. Yeah, right. Like probably good. Like, <laughs> like just if they, if you think that that might happen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you they are probably too intoxicated right. to give consent. Right. And additionally, I tell you know some of the young men, if you're struggling from whiskey dick mm-hmm. and you cannot retain an erection because you've had alcohol, or you cannot bust a nut. And you sweating and you probably should not be having sex at that time. Now, I think that that is giving you an opportunity to be able to determine one glass, a couple glasses of wine. But if you are so drunk that you're not standing Mm -hmm. up or things of that nature, I think that's those educational spaces. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing when I talk about um, when I work with young people and I talk about consent and how it has to be fluid, there was like, but Miss Michelle... Asking because steps of a condom. I'm always like the first step is asking, making sure you have consent, mm-hmm. and then once you get the condom mm-hmm. on, you need to check in again mm-hmm. to make sure. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so what do you say? They're always like, are you sure you want to do this? I was like, that's no. putting somebody's uh. doubt in someone's head. It also, like, it doesn't sound sexy at all. No. Are, you, are
1: you sure you want to do this? Like, yeah, like no, no I don't you I don't sound scared of that, right? <laughs> so
0: I play a game mm-hmm. where we have to come up with sexy ways. Oh my
1: god, yes! And
0: so when you hear young mm-hmm. people learning how to negotiate these terms because that's what Mm -hmm. it has to be how do you negotiate you know they they look at me crazy because i'm like why don't you say something like hey i saw reverse cowgirl in a porn you want to try that as your first Mm -hmm. position or you ready to take this big dick from behind girl exactly and then they give that choice
1: yeah and, and it's then, consent
0: and it's sexy. Yeah,
1: You're asking for consent in a sexy fucking way. It's basically dirty talk. Yes. You're turning dirty talk into consent talk or you combine the two and that is a great way to do that. Absolutely.
0: And and for the longest time when I've, and I've been teaching for what? God, too long. But they're like, you know, I don't talk during sex. I'm like, why? Yeah. Yeah, why don't you? Because that's creepy sex. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> silence. Like I want to hear some oohs and some ahs. And you were mentioning like, you know, um these nonverbals mm-hmm. uh, i think and i again because i work with young people i try not to encourage them to like but but we have to i know that
1: nonverbal signs are riskier because they're more easily misinterpreted yes but there's so much nonverbal negotiation of sex we cannot ignore them we just cannot because a lot of se- we have the data we have plenty of research showing that people negotiate sex non-verbally all the time. And so instead of saying, "No, no, no, just don't do that. Just use your words." Right. I mean that's that's fine. We should encourage people to use their words by all means, but you can't just just rely on that because there will be nonverbal communication and we have to teach nonverbal communication as well. Both for how people to give nonverbal signals that are clear, cuz yep. you can be very clear with nonverbal signs. Yeah. You can be. There's very there are very clear ways to say both yes, I want this and no, I don't want this yeah. without Uttering the words, and you have to. We have to teach people how to interpret other people's nonverbal signals. I'll I'll give you an example in the moment. You know, we let's say you're having, you're having, uh, uh, you're giving someone a blowjob, mm-hmm. and to go back to the conversation around anal sex on on men.
0: Yeah.
1: You're you're going down on him, and then you're not just gonna put two fingers in his ass Please all of don't. a sudden, Please right? Don't. <laughs> While you're down there, but what you could do is. As you're, you know, licking the balls or whatever, you can lick a little lower. Yeah. And then see how he responds. Does he open up and moan? Oh. Kind of saying, Ooh, that feels good. good. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> or does he clench and kind of, you know, move away and maybe even moves your head back, back up, up to mm-hmm. where you were, or some other sign of him saying like that is a very light easy question. It's a question. You licking a little under the balls, is not, it's not a very threatening situation. It's not invading someone's hole without asking. It's, it's basically a question mark that you're asking uh, non-verbally instead of saying, would you like me to lick your ass or something that is more specific. Um, but people will do that all the time.
0: But I think with the ass licking, can mm-hmm. we stay here for a second? Okay, sure. I love. I, staying I'm, I'm just with thinking ass about. Um, I'm thinking about a story once and a celebrity I once slept with. I'm not going to say who. Okay. And when I did the nonverbal mm-hmm. of going a little lower mm-hmm. to lick the mm-hmm. ass, well, they opened up, girl. They okay. spread it wide nice. open. Really um, wanted it. They wanted it. Mm-hmm. They did, and that's important. Um, thinking about the non. That's a really that's a really terrible tape. But um thinking about that nonverbal mm-hmm. space, right? Thinking about how do we negotiate and then not just ass licking, even pussy licking.
1: Sure, anything. I as think you're going as, you know, lick whatever, kiss, kiss the rest of the body, right? Negotiating these little nonverbal moments, you you start start with licking the boobs and kind of going down slowly, slowly and giving giving an opportunity for the person to say, no, I don't really want this. You know, pull your head Head back back up Mm -hmm. and say, no, not really, or whatever. You can think about that. Nonverbal consent also in the flirting space, when you're just starting to figure out, does somebody want me or not? You Hmm. don't start with coming up to someone and grabbing them by the pussy, unless you're the president. But you start with uh, locking eyes, smiles. hey, I like that. Right? You start with a smile and see whether they smile back. If they smile back... Well, maybe try again. Was that just like like a uh, a momentary, you know, courteous, whatever, smile? Or Mm -hmm. was that a smile of interest? Maybe try to get that smile again. If you get it for a second time, then maybe go go and say something. Hey, how you doing? And then from the hey, how you doing, see how they respond. Are they showing interest in talking to you? Or are they closing up and trying to get away from that conversation? So this is this kind of a continuous dance That we need to do with our partners wherever we are in that sexual situation, whether it's establishing the the very first contact on the street with a complete stranger, or are we negotiating ass leaking and and, I love ass (laughs)
0: leaking. I mean, I uh, well, I actually do that. So when I'm out in public, Mm. I'm a winker. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a a, smiler. Are you? Yeah, I
1: smile. I like to look and smile. You wink.
0: A mm. wink, and then that's the that's the come on over. Yeah. But For me, I I feel as though, and now I'm spilling all my game. On, <laughs> I, I feel as though when I do that, a man might have seen me before, but then when I give him the wink, then it's like come it's like me being mm-hmm. like come, come to over me. yeah come talk to me well i feel like we have gone above and beyond below and even <laughs> in the back door oh yeah <laughs> um in this conversation i'm going to definitely have you on again please tell everybody where they can find your stuff
1: yes uh, you can find me on my website drjana.com so drzhana.com i'm on social media on instagram twitter and facebook at dr same one drzhana or you can listen to the science of sex podcast scienceofsexpodcast.com. And you can also find some of my work on the Casual Sex Project. That's casualsexproject.com. It's a repository
0: of, of hookup stories from people from all over the world. Oh, that's going to be. We're going to look out for that. And when your paper is published, we're going to (laughs) bring you back. Or even when you're just done. Or whenever you want to come back. I will
1: come back anytime, Yeah, I love chatting with you. This has
0: been a great experience. Thank you guys so much for listening. I am once again your unapologetic sexologist, Michelle Hope. Stay tuned, stay up to date, and stay informed by following me on all social media at MHsexpert. Until next time, remember, let your freak flag fly, people. (laughs) Bye. Thanks for joining me. It's your favorite unapologetic sexologist, Michelle Hope, here in the Hub. And I want to remind you to make sure you're following me at MHsexpert on IG and Twitter because each week I'm going to be delivering those sexy tips you want and answering all your questions. So hit me up on Twitter and IG using the hashtag unapologetic sexologist.